you know, it is amazing. Exactly 48 hours ago, I have sent a paper. Its title is Innovative Public Procurement Policy for Assured Inclusive Innovation. And let me explain that. And there, I think on page 3, I have a full page on computer. So welcome to Outliers. This is a podcast with Outliers. But uh, I'm sitting with someone today who is uh, more an innovator and uh, a warrior <laughs> when it comes to innovation than an outlier. But I consider him an outlier given how long he's been at it. So I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Uh, R. Mashelkar to this podcast. Uh, welcome, Dr. Mashelkar. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I don't know where to start, uh, but uh, ever since I remember yeah, in my career, I've always uh, heard uh, you know, your talks and read uh, everything that you said. Uh, you always came across as uh, someone who who doesn't give on this innovation mission, uh, been involved across private and government initiatives. So who you are? I mean, are you a scientist? Are you an administrator? How do you look at yourself and what you do? Well, I've been fortunate enough to not only be doing science, but also leading science. Now, when you do science, you want to achieve peaks of excellence, basically. Because at the end of the day, uh, it is a limitless ladder of excellence that you are climbing. But when you are leading science, you want to make sure that the scientists that you lead also rise and create new benchmarks, not be just satisfied with first time in India, but first time in the world. As they say, there are only two people who are remembered those in science in particular, that those who say the first word in science and those who say the last word in science. That is where you get Nobel Prizes and so on and so forth. So it is all about uh, uh, doing science at the highest level, but at the same time, I do believe that excellence and relevance must go together. And the relevance is to the society, to the industry, to the nation, and so on and so forth. So science, that makes a difference in terms of not only creating new benchmarks of excellence, but being relevant, and particularly being relevant, not to a privileged few, but uh, to the whole mass of people, basically. Somebody asked me, I remember, uh, a question, and that will answer your question in terms of where I come from. I remember uh, you mentioned about Narayan Murthy, my very close friend, Ratan Tata, another close friend. He, I, and uh, Ratan, Narayan Murthy, myself and Ratan, uh, we were in Hubli. Deshpande had organized a meeting uh, with a large number of uh, young people and teachers and social entrepreneurs and so on. And one young girl got up and said, what is your last wish before you go? Before you go means go <laughs> from here. <laughs> and uh, I uh, remember my saying that my wish would be to see a smile on the face of not just select few, but seven billion people. So how do you do that? And that is where my philosophy is built around. 
doing science which will work for majority of the people, not for some people. I think it's uh, very important. That is where the terms like inclusive innovation, innovation which does not exclude but includes, uh, come in. That is where my basic thesis of getting more from less, for just not for more profit, but for more people come, more from less for more. That is where I and C.K. Prahlad wrote that paper in Harvard Business Review, Innovation's Holy Grail. How do you get more from less for more? Giving a completely different philosophy. Because if you look at businesses, they do well and then they do good. Doing well and doing good. Like uh, Bill Gates. Made a lot of money, but now through the foundation, uh, he is doing good. So that is doing well and doing good. But doing well by doing good. Where doing good itself becomes a business, basically. Because you create products and services mm -hmm. which are belonging to the category of affordable excellence. Because normally affordable excellence is considered as a contradiction in terms. What is affordable can't be excellent, what is excellent cannot be affordable. India has proved the word wrong by creating the highest quality goods at not 10% cheaper, but 100% cheaper, and sometimes 1,000% cheaper, you know. So some and substance of what I'm saying is that I'm driven by this motivation not only to be competitive in global terms in, with respect to science, so there's a prestige that is attached to it, and I want India to be among the top few, but at the same time, making sure that high technology can be made to work for poor. Making high technology work for rich is very easy. Making low technology work for the poor is very easy. How do you make high technology work for the poor? That has been my life's mission. Sure. So, so let us look back at your decades uh, at this uh, war or, or whatever we call it, at this mission. Uh, how would you assess everything you have been doing so far? Uh, I hope you don't mind <laughs> my asking this question, but uh, kind of a report card hmm. uh, in hindsight, because now you can look back. Uh, what would you consider, how would you describe some of the failures, some of the achievements. Uh, and can you take us through some of those milestones and sure. what did you learn from both failures and achievements? Sure, sure, sure. Uh, let's take, uh, uh, in, in my career, for example, the way I came back, uh, I remember it was not a planned uh, sort of uh, comeback. Uh, the Director General then of CSIR, Dr. Nayaduma, had come to London and uh, he simply wanted to see me. I saw him, I was barely 32, and he painted the picture of New India, and he said it cannot be built unless young people like you come back. And I don't think uh, from here, from head, I think from heart, and I said yes. I was doing very well in England, teaching, and I dropped everything and I came back on a princely salary of 2,100 rupees, okay? I was born in a very poor family, uh, and therefore, money was never sort of a constraint or a you know, challenge for me. And I remember I joined National Chemical Laboratory where the, as you enter the laboratory on the very first day, 15 November 1976, I saw something beautiful. It said the purpose of this laboratory is to advance knowledge and use it for the good of the people. I've never seen a more powerful message by the way. Advanced knowledge, that may do highest quality science, 
but at the same time use it for the good of the people. And that became the motto of my life. As I grew, I found, however, that uh, what we were doing in those days, I'm talking about pre-1991, pre-liberalization day, uh, we were a closed economy and therefore uh, we were protected, our industry was protected with huge tariff barriers and therefore import substitution, reverse engineering was actually the, the, the uh, way we built our things, you know, copying. More, more or less. Now my challenge came when I became the director of National Chemical Report in 1989. What I found was that when I went to our industry with some breakthroughs that my scientists had, which were ahead of the rest of the world, the first thing they will ask is that, but have they done it? Has Europe done it? Has US done it? Has Japan done it? So I said, what am I going to do? Am I going to do reverse engineering all my life or am I going to do forward engineering? You know, and then I ask, when in difficulty, I ask a fundamental question. What am I selling? Knowledge. What is my market? Not just India. It could be United States of America, basically. That was a paradigm shift, by the way, at the time. Because this was 1989, two years before liberalization. And I said, let National Chemical Laboratory be International Chemical Laboratory. We'll export our knowledge to the best in the world. And I remember mentioning GE, General Electric, because I'm a polymer specialist and they were doing something in polymers that I was fascinated by. So I said, we should be able to, uh, you know, do even technology transfer saleable patterns even to GE. And I remember a young fellow coming to me and saying, sir, that is very inspirational, but please realize that the budget of GE, R&D budget, is two and a half times India's R&D budget. I say, it is not the size of the budget that matters, it is the size of idea that matters. And I said, since you talked about uh, GE will take on GE. And I remember, I'm, I'm, I'm using some technological words now, sure. because they were uh, actually having 40% market share of what is called polycarbonate. Polycarbonate is a tough uh, uh, engineering plastic. And uh, we, I had conceptualized what is called a solid state polycondensation concept for that. And we found GE had not uh, sort of worked on it. Maybe they didn't think about it, I don't know. And actually, I said, let's uh, uh, sort of change our culture, not publish or perish, but patent, publish, and prosper. That is where the patent came. And that was out of necessity. If I'm going to transfer or license my technology to GE, and I copy something from them, and go to them, they'll kick me out. So I said, we must be ahead of them in terms of the basic issue was that we were able to get a breakthrough in solid-state polycondensation, get U.S. patents on that. So when I went to Jack Welch R&D, I mean, uh, GE R&D Center in Schenectady, and when I gave a talk, you know, they were already surprised that uh, which is this laboratory which has put their flag on our territory, our territory because they had 40% work market share, because we had some idea. And that is where our partnership built, by the way, got built out of respect. And then they started working with us. And Jack Welch one day said, if they are so good, why are we not there? That is where the Jack Welch R&D Center came up uh, in Bangalore. And if you go there, you will yes. find a conference room name after me. Okay. Yeah. So the basic issue was that we demonstrated that there are no limits to human achievement. <clears throat> there are no limits to human imagination, excepting the limit that you put on yourself. All right? So the same scientists, we're just doing reverse engineering, copying, 
were able to create patterns which could be licensed to the technology leader in the world. Same people, basically. So the basic transformation of National Chemical Laboratory to International Chemical Laboratory was not just a nameplate change. It was a change of spirit that, yes, we can, and we can beat the best uh, in the world. I think that is where the journey, I would say, my early career started. I'm talking about almost uh, 30 years ago. Uh, as we move forward, of course, there were many other uh, battles one had to fight. I became the director general of CSIR, chain of 40 laboratories. My challenge there, of course, the first challenge was 40 labs behaved as though they were 40 independent labs. So building team CSIR, building one CSIR, all right, was my first challenge. The second was we were Council of Scientific and Industrial Research. That word and was taken very seriously. So either we did science or we did industrial research. That means that industrial research was not based on hardcore science, cutting edge science, but was reverse engineering copying and science was being done differently. I said, no, we'll be Council of Scientific Industrial Research. That means our industrial research will be based on the highest class of science, absolutely cutting edge science, you know. And that was a sort of a major change. Third, uh, there was no incentive. I mean, if, uh, you know, in our country, major challenge is Saraswati Puja is done differently, Lakshmi Puja is done on a different day. There's no connect between Saraswati and Lakshmi. That is not the case in the rest of the world. I mean, I've been a visiting professor at Harvard for five years. In October every year, I used to go. George Whitesides has been my partner. On one hand, he's the highest sighted scientist in the world, Saraswati at his best. But at the same time, the market cap of his companies is close to $30 billion Lakshmi at his best. All right? In the same uh, sort of uh, individual. So bringing that culture was very important. So incentivizing that, if uh, science is going to create wealth, that part of the wealth should go to the scientist who created it. So, you know, changing that entire sort of uh, uh, culture was very important. And I'm very happy to say, I was Director General of CSIR for 11 and a half years. Uh, when I look back, I look back with satisfaction for a simple reason, that when Jain Naralikar wrote his book, Scientific Age, and he described the top 10 achievements of Indian science and technology and innovation. It uh, started with Ramanujan, of course, and there were great names like uh, Raman and so on and so forth. And, uh, he ended by talking about the transformation of CSI in the 90s as among the top 10 achievements of Indian science and technology. So that gave me, I must say, a great deal of satisfaction. So there has been a turnaround in terms of, I would say, uh, mindset. Our minds are very bright, as you know. Uh, they, the, the, our challenge, however, is uh, Indian genes express in Silicon Valley. The challenge is to make them express in Indus Valley and show that India is now a land of opportunity and the best of minds uh, actually getting an opportunity, whether it is Startup India or this, that and the other, etc. I think that is a major challenge. So if you ask me uh, where, where would be my concerns, my concerns are about the fact that our progress must be based on talent, technology and trust. Trust is very important, basically. Lack of trust, I think, is our major challenge. Uh, 
and let me explain that. Uh, by citing a very interesting lesson that I learned in my life. Bill Gates had come to India about 10 years ago. And I remember there was a dinner come discussion with him, just five, six people. Nandan Nilekani was there, Anand Mahindra was there, and so on. And Bill Gates, I remember saying, uh, I mean, talking to us about the Harvard University commencement lecture that he gave. And he declared himself as the most successful dropout from Harvard, which he was. But then he narrated an interesting instance. He said a company in Albuquerque was going to manufacture computer hardware. Those were early days of computers. And uh, he said if they are manufacturing hardware, they will require software. So he said, I phoned them up and offered them software half thinking that they will keep the phone down. Because you know, 19, 20 year old young boy in those early days offering that, they did not. They say, we are not ready as yet, come after a month. And Bill Gates said, thank God they said, they are not ready because I did not have the software that I offered. So what it means is the trust of the society in a young man, untested, unproven, that he will deliver it. And the trust, in himself, in that young man, in oneself, in that young man, you know. I think that is where in our innovation ecosystem we are missing. For example, our uh, venture capital tends to be vulture capital, not adventure capital. We require adventure, early stage financing, uh, uh, you know, picking up uh, great disruptive new ideas, supporting them. I think we still lack that, that risk-taking, and so on and so forth. I have in my lectures, as you can see all around, that is the confidence I'm trying to build. But Dr. Mashalkar, one point is, when you look at, uh, and of course you have tracked these companies for long and you have seen them, like Hewlett Packard and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the things is the government, the American government or China government, played a very important role in encouraging early innovation by buying them, right? Uh, one of the things uh, I have noticed on the ground, I spend a lot of time talking to entrepreneurs. Uh, I, in fact, spent some time with uh, uh, Professor B. Vinay, Simputer. Uh, one of the complaints is that the government in India, I mean, of course, Startup India and all is fine, can contribute effectively by actually buying these innovations from smaller companies. Because when you are a fledgling startup, uh, that's a big boost. Uh, that's a big block. You know, it is amazing. Exactly 48 hours ago, I have sent a paper. Its title is Innovative Public Procurement Policy for Assured Inclusive Innovation. And let me explain that. And there, I think on page 3, I have a full page on computer. And the case I make out is exactly what you are talking about. All governments, Chinese is very aggressive. OECD, all countries, if you just see, Europe in particular, Germany in particular, US, etc., they all have public procurement policies for innovation and of innovation. Okay? Now, in the case of Simputer, I have specifically mentioned there that there is a New York Times write-up in year 2001 which talks about all the 
uh, you know, glorious achievements of all these top leaders, and they say the best achievement is simpler. All right, in 2001. So what happens is that if early enough, you don't do what you just now said, for example, uh, there is a challenge. So Simputer demonstrated. In fact, the beauty about Simputer was that it was ahead in terms of technology. The rest of the world, the technologies which went into iPhone, for example, accelerometer, the technologies that uh, went uh, into uh, other products, uh, like, you know, the Galaxy, yeah. uh, uh, you know, etc. They were part, so we were ahead. Yes. But it is not uh, uh, the invention that matters. Innovation is a successful exploitation of a new idea in the marketplace. And that's a journey. And in that journey, for example, if there was a public procurement, where we would say, computer, after all, it was supposed to be used for rural villages and so on and so forth. It was supposed to do not just private good, social good. So if the government had said, here is an order for 100,000, basically, yeah. all right? Yeah. And we'll uh, sort of uh, test it. The rest, the prices crash, the, the, the technologies uh, undergo a sharp change, component suppliers, they can be created within the country and so on and so forth, etc. So I think that is a critical point. You have hit the spot. In fact, in my paper, I have also given another example, by the way, because this is 2001. I'm talking today. Take one example. We are all concerned about climate change. And therefore, we will all want to replace the diesel generating sets, for example, which emit uh, solid particles by something which doesn't emit only um, nothing but water, that is fuel cell, okay? You generate electricity by using fuel cell. Is the technology available for love or for money? No, okay? So what would have done in the past? We would have got a Ballard, for example, the market leaders, looked at them, huh? opened up the box and copied it. No. What I did was that I created, and I can tell you the role of the government now in two ways. I said, for innovation and off innovation. So first part I will tell you is about uh, how we stimulated uh, a sort of technological innovation in yourself. I was the director general of CSI when in year 2000, we launched what is called as a new millennium Indian technology leadership initiative. Why the word leadership? Because we have been followers, copiers. We want to lead. Now, the moment you want to lead, you're not copying, you're bound to fail sometimes or oftentimes. And Indian industry would not have the appetite for risk, so we said government should take the risk. And you know, it was a unique program where I said public-private partnership, the private sector will get money uh, with 0% interest to be returned only if they're successful. So that was a real adventure capital. And public institutions will get uh, grant. So that was a combination. And the two come together. And industry gets involved right from the beginning. So we started also among other programs, fuel cell program. The condition that I had put, however, on that program was that it cannot be a copy of what people have done. It has to be better. I have the reputation of, uh, I mean, I have two reputations. One is dangerous optimist. The second is people call me a 10x guy. 10x is doing it 10 times better, but 10 times cheaper. Okay? And that cannot come unless you have extreme innovation, not incremental. 
10% you can get by incremental. 10 times you cannot. You have to be disruptive. So I gave that challenge. That was number one. Number two, my own experience has been that many times you get into advanced technology, one component, you know, on which you depend upon a foreign supplier can really kill the project. Like, you know, when I'm a director general of CSR, we had this Saras project, 14-seater aircraft. And out of thousands of components, there was one starter generator, which was on the entity's list. And that delayed our project by 18 months. So second condition I put with that complete vendor development, where every single component from here, you know, will be manufactured, uh, will be manufactured locally. I'm very delighted to tell you that under the leadership of Dr. Ashish Lele, he's one of the brightest scientists, by the way, Infosys Science Award winner, Bhatnagar Prize Award winner, Fellow of Indian National Science Academy, real star. Under his uh, leadership today, India is, you know where? We have almost uh, 25 plus, I think, is the number of patents. 150 research papers, we talk about basic science, the new breakthroughs. Scientific breakthroughs like polyionic liquids, or multifunctional electrodes, etc., which nobody in the world has thought of. Already, at the prototype stage, our costs are one-third, okay? So if we mass manufacture, they'll become maybe one-fifth, even one-tenth as we can go. And technology, performance-wise, were two to three times superior. It is getting more from less, okay? Now, this is a fuel cell? No. Uh, fuel cells, in fuel cells, in fuel cells, okay. Now, here is the first part. That means government funded this, okay? So I said off innovation and for innovation. So off innovation part they have done. It is public procurement in a sense. Here is a technology. I give you the money. You create technology. But that is half the story. Now for innovation, what they have to do in order so new millennium Indian technology leadership. Technology leadership we have now because we are better than the others. Do we have business leadership? No. How do you create business leadership? That is where government comes in. For example, I'll give you a concrete example. There are telecom towers, more than 500,000, okay? Each using diesel generating set, okay? Burning couple of billion dollars of diesel, creating solid particulates, 100 to 150 nanometer, okay? Damaging the environment and so on and so forth. What we have created in our fuel cells, their costs are even less than the diesel generating sets. They will emit not solid particles, but uh, water, All right. hydrogen so plus oxygen. Yeah, that's correct. Now, what is required? Two things, government policy and government public procurement. Okay? Government policy saying that these digital generating sets have to be uh, spelled out. It is almost like demonetization. 8, 8 November, uh, <laughs> you know, we simply said from tomorrow. I cannot say this will be tomorrow because there is a capital investment people have done, but phased-wise, basically. What will it do? It will generate huge business. Basically, you can just see if all of them have to be replaced. And uh, more importantly, uh, it will help exactly in the way that you basically you know, talk about. We can be technology leaders in the rest of the world. And most importantly, we also calculated, even if one-third of them are replaced, there will be 20 to 30,000 jobs created because we are also looking at jobs. 
in small and medium enterprises. So it's a win-win situation in terms of environment, in terms of economics, in terms of jobs, in terms of technology leadership, but the government has to play a very critical role. Totally agree. No, because it, it, it's a complaint that a lot yeah, of entrepreneurs yeah, no, have. The, no, but uh, they're serious about it. As you can see, uh, this government for startup policies, for example, you would see that they have made a provision of public procurement. See, what happens uh, the, if, you, if you go back, like Shantabayate, uh, you know, sort of long time ago, they created, Varabhasadeddy created a recombinant DNA vaccine for hepatitis B. But he struggled because there was no public procurement. Finally, he had 40% of UNICEF supply. All right? Ashok Junjunwala, for example, wireless local loop. He was a leader. But the technology got commercialized in Brazil and Madagascar first before it came here. In both these cases, if there was a public procurement, yeah. what difference it would have made? You can quite clearly see. So this government is serious about it. And, and that is why I have actually done the paper. Right. Well, that's encouraging to know. Uh, the other thing I wanted to know as an individual, how do you manage or handle criticism, uh, controversies, uh, as a leader in, in working in this space where you are interfacing with governments, private companies, you know, all kinds of, uh, as an individual and a leader, uh, what are the lessons from you in handling criticism and uh, controversies? Yeah. I think uh, that's an extraordinarily important question, by the way, because in public life, even a sentence that you utter can be interpreted, misinterpreted, and so on and so forth. Uh, I uh, will go a bit anecdotal. See, my granddaughter, Ishwari, when she was four or five, I still remember in the morning, I uh, would be reading a newspaper, she'd be fooling around, and so on. She was learning alphabets. So I said, better sit down, let me test you out on alphabets. So she was sitting where you are sitting, right, on my left. So I wrote B. She said B. I wrote D. She said D. Finally, I wrote Z, Z. And she said N. I said, no, beta, it is Z. No, Abba, it is N. Now, I looked at that Z and just turned it around from her side, and it was N. Just look at Z and just turn it around, okay? I was right because I was looking at it from my angle. She was also right because she was looking at it from her angle. And therefore, one of the sort of things that I have done in my life is that, uh, as they say, you know, parachute works only when it is open. Mind is also like that. It works only when it is open. So I kept an open mind on that. Because when people criticize, they have an experience of life, they have a view. Right now, if you get up and look from this window, you'll get one view. But if you go to the other side and look at the other window, through the other window, you will get another view, basically. So each one of us has a view from our own window, you know, and both of us can be basically right. So that, with that principle, basically, uh, you know, and that's why you must have seen there are several Mashilgar committees uh, where members of the committees used to be uh, NGOs, which were very active. Um, they wanted solutions tomorrow and, and the rest of it, etc. But uh, there has to be, uh, let's say, uh, idealism as well as pragmatism. You know? And finally, pragmatism 
uh, is very, very important. I mean, I, I'll, I'll tell you, for example, just give you a concrete example. Since you said uh, uh, criticize, yeah, I've been criticized basically in the past, you know, uh, in public life. You do it. I'll take one criticism. For example, in 2003, there was a national auto fuel policy that I chaired. You've seen the problems in Delhi now, right? Similar problems were getting created by uh, um, automotive emissions. So government wanted me to chair a committee where there will be a roadmap, you know, on when will we get uh, Euro 2, Euro 3, Euro 4, equivalent to BS2, BS3, BS4, but, you know. And I remember laying a roadmap. There were NGOs who wanted it tomorrow. They wanted BS4 tomorrow, basically. Why take so long? But I'm a practicing engineer. I knew that if we want to have a fuel quality, which is not 500 parts per million diesel, sulfur in diesel, but 50 ppm, I have to have what is called as a hydro desulfurization plant. It would cost the country 70 to 80,000 crore. The time for getting a license of that technology and erecting that plant would be four to five years. If we don't do that, and if that diesel is not available locally, we have to import it, and we didn't have money to import, right? I went to auto companies, basically, and said Euro 4 engines, because they're very substantially different from Euro 1 or Euro 2. I said, how much time it will take? And they told me the kind of time. So I have to look at all these aspects, and I gave a timetable. And I was very heavily criticized that I was sold to oil companies, I was sold to uh, car companies, and so on and so forth. I was on the front page of a particular newspaper for seven continuous days. And they wouldn't say Mashelkar committee, they would say Mashelkar, by the way. On the eighth day to pity, it was a Sunday, and I remember they put me in the inside of the cover, gave my photograph, and they said, most harassed man of the week. Okay. What was the reality? What uh, the NGOs were saying was that the uh, roadmap I had given was two lakhs. Frankly, that turned out to be too tough because government just couldn't meet even those deadlines that I had given. They slipped by 10 to 12 months simply because of availability of fuel, this, that, and the other, etc. You know. So what happens is that, yes, the NGOs were right because they want uh, uh, um, India to go green as quickly as possible. But the pragmatism of supply side has to be always uh, basically looked at. And I've gone through a number of such experiences in my life. I'm just telling you about one. It was tough because I was staying alone in uh, uh, my 800 square feet flat in uh, Delhi. My family was here. In the morning, you just come out, look at Times of India or uh, Indian Express or any other newspaper, pick up and you find yourself on the front cover. <laughs> <laughs> you get me for, for wrong reasons. So I, I think uh, uh, if, if one has that particular balance of views from different windows, the angle from which you look, etc., I think it makes uh, a big uh, sort of difference. Final uh, couple of questions. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. Um, you look at what's happening in Delhi today. Uh, and uh, I mean, one cannot help but wonder where are India's scientists? Where are the answers to this problem? Uh, so, so while I understand your point of 
you know, you can't just leapfrog. I mean, there's a process, things take time, you know, and, and so on. But you look where we are today and, and the situation in Delhi, everything is looking quite helpless. Uh, how could scientists uh, or innovators help this as of yesterday? I mean, yeah. what's missing? Uh, I uh, am also very seriously concerned, particularly it is our capital, uh, you know, I'm not so much uh, concerned about uh, uh, the image part, but the people part, you know, in a sense, uh, those emissions, uh, you know, what it is doing to the people's health, etc. I've gone through that, national auto fuel policy also, we have looked at these uh, public health issues as being prim our primary concern, so we have to solve it, and sooner rather than later. Do we have the technologies to do that? I would say yes. We do have, you know. There is nothing that this country cannot do, very honestly. The issue is that of crop burning, basically, all right? So what happens to the agriculture residue? There are a large number of technologies that are available to deal with that agriculture residue, all right? Right from creating fodder for animals to its gasification to create energy or electricity, okay? What it will require, First will be a policy initiative that, look, this is not done. Number two, putting in place the uh, uh, um, organizational innovation in terms of how do you organize, you know, collection, feeding, because after all, uh, there are economic sizes for uh, uh, using these uh, sort of uh, power plants and so on and so forth, etc. And move it from that particular perspective. I think it's a combination of policy, technology, and workflow. You know, I'll j just give an example how, how things can be done rapidly. Look at what we have done in terms of financial inclusion today. The fastest and the biggest financial inclusion in the world, today we are talking about 30 crore plus accounts. Fastest. In fact, uh, a couple of years ago, 21 August to 26 August, uh, we created accounts in that week which gave us the Guinness Book of Record certificate. How was it possible? Combination of technology. First is mobile, a billion mobile. Second is Aadhaar, identification as well as authentication. And third is public policy, Janadana Yojana. All right, public sector banks cooperated and so on and so forth. It was a combination of these three. Basically, that is, that's what we made. If only, if, if one of them was missing, it would not have happened. Like today we talk about a billion mobile. How did that happen? First was a policy innovation that will not uh, just lay down more copper lines, but why more internet is allowed, mobile, and so on and so forth. Okay? The second was technology. Who did it? Ericsson's and Nokia's, not Indian companies. $250 to $25 handset. Right? That made it affordable. But supposing it was not $25, it was $0. Would people have bought it? No. If the phone calls were 10 cents per minute, as they were in the US, your income is $2 a day, 20-minute call and it's gone. That was brought down to 0.01 cent. And now, of course, Joe has brought it to zero. Why is call is zero? That is how it became affordable. Now, just imagine. Uh, so that is business model innovation, basically. CK Prahlad and I have covered it in our paper on how that was done, basically. So it's a Policy innovation, technology innovation, 
and a business model innovation and a combination. If one of them was missing, it would not have happened. Similarly, JAM, J-A-M, would not have happened if there was no com combination. I think in Delhi smog case, it's exactly that, that what we need to do. It's a combination. Sure. Final question. Uh, the other thing is about the whole patents uh, league table and the war for patents globally and you look at the way China is uh, right there. Of course, US and other European countries are around there too. You've been at this for such a long time. Uh, is it too much to expect for India to get better on that league table? Is that the right way of measuring uh, you know, our progress on the innovation front? Are we missing something? Or you believe it, we could be better on that front? Oh yes, there is no question we could do better. My challenge is the following. My challenge is, as I have described in my book, Reinventing India, I said, uh, I have, in, in one chapter I talk about uh, the good news and the bad news, uh, part of Indian innovation. And there I say good news is that an Indian scientist has breakthroughs in carbon nanotubes technology. And he publishes papers uh, in the highest rated journals. And a lot of money is made out of it. The bad news is the money is not made in India, but by a company in Singapore. So ideas are generated in India, but patents based on that idea by tweaking them are taken by another company, all right? What I'm saying is that Indian ideas must create wealth in India. Now, ideas generating new knowledge will not just work. It, that knowledge must be protected. It must be monetizable. Like if you are selling a house, the first thing they will ask you is that give me your property papers, that you own it. It's exactly the same thing. And that is why I used to talk about patent literacy very early, 1989, you know. In fact, people, I used to talk so much about it, people stopped calling me Mashelkar. They would say patentkar, <laughs> basically, you know. And um, we demonstrated. Like, for example, I talked about MCL. I'm very proud that in 89 in my speech, we said we must do reverse transfer of technology to GE. 1992, three of our solid state polycondensation patterns were licensed for a million dollars to the leader in the world, all right? Just three patterns. Wealth got created based on our own ideas for us, basically. So our scientists are capable of doing that. When I became the Director General of CSR, two-thirds of US patterns, by the way, that were granted to Indians in India were granted to CSR, two-thirds, all right? So it is possible that we can basically lead. But CSR getting patterns to me is of uh, little relevance. It is the industrial enterprises that must. And in industrial enterprises, that awareness is coming up now. For example, just uh, uh, three or four weeks ago, I was in uh, uh, Mahindra, uh, uh, you know, uh, enterprises where uh, uh, in that uh, Mahindra Research Valley, they have, uh, this, we're celebrating the thousand patent that they have. Basically, that's great. That means they are uh, realizing the sort of value of that, you know. I would like to see that happen more and more. And I am seeing that because I'm chairman of Reliance Innovation Council, Thermax Innovation Council, KPIT Technology Innovation Council. KPIT Technologies were just in service. 
and uh, one day I said it is not, uh, uh, you know, by the sweat or the brawn or the number of people, but the brain that we have to create. And they, are, they have become so strong in patterns within three to four years, as a matter of fact, you know, and they're licensing some of them, they're using them for sort of in-house, etc. So I'm seeing the wave. All that I would say is the following. You know, as an old man, I always take a perspective, having been uh, for so long. Uh, the perspective is that when India celebrated in 2007, 60 years of its independence, I celebrated 16 years of its independence. Why 16? Because in 1991, we liberalized, we opened up. All right? So until 1991, our industry was protected. There no cause for innovating and creating new products because it was sales market, not buyer's market, so as to say. Competition was not there and so on and so forth. That is not the case today. So I think this journey has, for us, began only in 1991, after uh, 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 industry was made to realize that, look, uh, innovate or perish. Otherwise, imitate and survive was, uh, was the best. So this new change, I'm quite sure, as I see now, uh, you know, I'm very optimistic that we'll be the leaders. After all, don't forget, the same Indian genes working in the multinational R&D labs today, we have more than 300,000 scientists, engineers, and technologists employed in more than 1,100 of uh, multinational R&D centers, whether they are Microsoft or whether they are GE or General Motors or Shell or Exxon and all that, in some cases they are generating as much as one-third of their global patents sitting in their labs. Okay? Of course the benefits are going to them. That's fine. What I am seeing is that the same people can do it for Indian enterprises. Isn't it? So I have total trust in the Indian talent to lead. There is no question. They were doing in Silicon Valley. Now they are doing it in India for multinationals. They should be doing it for Indian firms now. <laughs> no, we can all hope that it happens soon. Uh, it was great talking to you, uh, Dr. Mashelka. Godspeed with uh, everything that you are doing. And uh, like you rightly said, you are dangerously optimistic. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very Thank much. You, sir.